Hello out there. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we take a deep look at opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Research is increasingly showing that housing is a foundation for virtually everything. It predicts what kind of neighborhood you'll grow up in, the quality of school you'll attend, your access to transportation and amenities. Housing shapes segregation patterns, the crime levels of your surroundings, job opportunities, exposure to certain health risks, your friends and social networks. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, and yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the really important and sometimes overlooked intersections of affordable housing and mental health. And we're here with Andrew Sperling with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. NAMI is the nation's leading voice on mental health. NAMI is one of the steering uh, committee organizations of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Uh, And Andrew's been NAMI's director of legislative and policy advocacy since 1996. In that role, he oversees NAMI's federal policy agenda in Congress and with various federal agencies. He was part of the successful passage of the Medicare Modernization Act that established Medicare Part D, uh, the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, and the Frank Melville Supportive Housing Investment Act. He also serves as a consumer representative to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners and as co-chair of the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities Housing Task Force. He received his BA from Tulane, his MA from George Washington University, and his JD from Franklin Pierce Law Center. So, Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today uh, to talk about this really important issue, one that I think is is overlooked too often. And I think the, you know, the tough reality is that for someone with a serious mental health condition, it's uh, a safe, decent, affordable home is is hard to find. And if you don't find it, it's one of the biggest barriers. Uh, to recovery. So, you know, we'll get to the, the meat of the issues here in a minute, but first just wanted the uh, listeners to learn a little bit more about you um, and kind of what motivates you, what you can't read in your bio, right? <laughs> You've been working and advocating yeah. uh, with NAMI for a long time. So why do you do it? What personally motivates you? Well, I do have a brother who lives with schizophrenia. Okay. Uh, he lives in, in uh, the state of California, in Santa Cruz, California, and he's actually having some challenges right now with housing stability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is... Uh, this is when we talk to our members, and a lot of our members are, are family members. Yeah. So they're parents of an adult child who has a uh, disorder such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And their number one anxiety is actually not helping their son or daughter get access to psychiatric treatment, to mental health treatment. It's what's going to happen when they're gone. And the biggest anxiety of all is, is having access to decent, safe, and affordable housing over the long term. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, we know without access to uh, decent, safe, and affordable housing, all the aspirations we have for recovery and integration in the community just collapse. Sure. So is the is the feeling amongst these families that the treatment is more readily accessible than the housing? It actually is. Yeah. Yes, yeah. because the treatment, for the most part, is an entitlement. Right. Uh, when you when you yeah. become eligible for the Medicaid program, uh, you're going to get your treatment paid for. Uh, not yeah. your treatment, your medications. You might need support services, case management, things like that rehabilitation services. Uh, but housing is not an entitlement. You right. can meet all the eligibility for Section 8 and walk in the, uh, the walk through the door of your local housing authority, and they're going to tell you, uh, we'll put you on the waiting list and we'll call you in eight years. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so your brother 
having this experience is is a big motivating factor for you to do this work. It's what gets uh, to, you up to continue day. to do it. But yeah, yeah sure. it's it's, uh, it, it's rewarding when you meet the yeah. NAMI members out there. When you go out to conferences around the country where yeah. uh, the, the local NAMI organizations have, and you meet these families, it really affects you, and it it's sort of really a heavy burden and responsibility to be their voice uh, yeah. in Washington before HUD and and, and, and the U.S. Congress um, because they need a voice. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, I mean, what do, you, what do you feel like have been your most successful accomplishments at NAMI and and what have been uh, yeah. kind of your biggest setbacks? Well, so let me talk about an important accomplishment. And you yeah. mentioned it very briefly in the introduction, something called the Frank Melville Supportive Housing Investment Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, those of you that listen to public radio or may have heard of that name Melville may may ring ring a bell. Sure. Uh, this uh, Frank Melville passed away about a year year and a half before we passed this legislation in 2010. And uh, then Congressman uh, Chris Murphy, who was then a congressman, now a senator from Connecticut, uh, he was a constituent of of of, of then Congressman Murphy's, and he insisted that the bill be named in his honor. So it just takes an, an, a program that's been around HUD for the better part of 40 years, the 811 program, and made some really important reforms to take the limited dollars in that program and stretch it much, much further. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also to move away from the model that 811 had been, which was building eight and 10 unit group homes and align disability policy uh, with the housing policy. And we are now trying to, to push more integrated settings. And this is actually mandated under Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act in a Supreme Court case. Uh, from the late 90s called uh, called LC versus Olmstead. Uh, and it, uh, Title II of the ADA, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, by a 63 majority, uh, requires that states and localities, public government, if you will, uh, that they allow people with disabilities to live in the most integrated settings. So we changed 811 to put the emphasis on project-based rent subsidies uh, that would layer into other affordable rental uh, uh, properties, uh, usually typically developed by the low-income housing tax credit. And we, we took a limited amount of money in the program. We, we more than tripled, actually close to quadrupled the number of units that can be produced uh, with the same amount of money. Yeah. And, and that's probably one of the bills I'm probably most proud to have been associated with to, and, and to, to be able to work on. Sure. And then setbacks. What, what uh, are some of the biggest, oh boy. Um, uh, biggest setbacks? <laughs> biggest setbacks. Um I think, and again, they, they they were kind of imposed on us, but we went through a period when we had the the, the limits on discretionary spending, mm-hmm. where we weren't able to make the investments in HUD programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if if that's one setback, it's the disappointment. And again, this is, was beyond sort of all of our control. Sure. Uh, but we're in a situation now where upwards of 85% of the HUD budget is consumed by just renewing the existing units of affordable rental housing we have. And so that's been a frustration. And we're finally, we, we made some changes the last year. We had a, a two-year budget agreement, and that allowed Congress to make some serious investments in new units. Uh, and in fact, uh, at the insistence of, of, of Congressman Rodney Freelinghuisen, the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, we've had, you know, what, what, last year about $190 million, and the year before that, uh, uh, close to $285 million invested in new Section 8 tenant-based vouchers targeted non-elderly people with disabilities. So we're making some progress there, but that's been a real frustration is the, the way the HUD budget has been flat over time in sure. recent years, and we need need to get that investment in new units. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about the organization itself. Um, what are the various things that NAMI does? Oh, NAMI does a lot does of a things. Lot, I yeah, guess. it does so, a lot. So kind of break it down for So us. advocacy yeah. is only a small piece. Right. Um, we, we are an organization started by the families uh, of people living with mental illness, and we have close to 700, 800 organizations out there uh, all over the country in every state, and most of what they do is run NAMI signature programs. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And I'll give you what the, the main signature program is called Family to Family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a 12-week course that you take. Uh, it's for loved ones, people who have a loved one with, with, a, with a serious mental illness. And for two hours uh, over this period, once a week, mm-hmm. you learn about what your loved one's going through. You learn how to help your loved one. You learn how to advocate for them. You learn you know, about the symptoms of this, the dis- disorder, how you can interact with them better. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and it's been, it's a very successful program and it really, and there are others as well. We have uh, In Our Own Voice, uh, where people with schizophrenia get trained to go to local rotary clubs and church mm-hmm. groups and do public speaking and stand up in front of their local community and say, sure. I have schizophrenia yeah. and, and, and to try and you know, work on, uh, destigmatize the disorder. So that's a, a large chunk of what NAMI does is education. Mm-hmm. And it's not public education, although we do some of that. It's really educating people that are living with the, these, uh, with mental illness and their family members and their family. Uh, on, 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 we pro- even providers. Yeah. Our providers don't. Family to family has been around for a long time? 20 years, yeah. 20 years, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and we do a lot of legislative and policy advocacy. We have, sure. you know, we're in almost every state in terms of having a state office that goes down to the state capitol lobby uh, on, on policy issues and legislation at the state capitol. Okay, okay. How, what's the staff look like? How big are we talking? Uh, the, the national level? office is about 80 people. Okay, okay. Uh, and, and in terms of staff of the entire organization, that's sure. sort of an unknown number. <laughs> right. Because every NAMI out there is a separate 501c organization. Yeah. And the ability of some of these small, remote, and a lot of these 700 organizations are all volunteer. These are all people that are NAMI members that volunteer to teach the programs. We have we do walkathons, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to raise money. All these different things are largely done by the volunteers. Right. And so, why participate in the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign? Uh, and what what excites you about the campaign? What worries you about the campaign? Uh, this was an easy sell at NAMI. Right? <laughs> we, we we've been concerned about housing, you know, since forever. Again, yeah. it is the biggest challenge that people with mental illness face, particularly those that are on the more severe end of the spectrum who rely on SSI, Supplemental Security Income, sure. as their sole source of monthly cash assistance. Um, so uh, NAMI has been at the table with the Low Income Housing Coalition and the National Alliance and mm-hmm. Homelessness for years and years and years. Uh, so, but, 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 but the idea that we, we, we've seen the, pro- the very slow progress we've made where it's just people that are housing advocates to go to advocate for the HUD budget and, and, and advocate for changes that are going to expand access to affordable rental housing for extremely low-income households. Uh, but we need to get other sectors involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've been working to try and get other mental health organizations, but also other health organizations, other disability sure. organizations. Um, uh, there's some opportunities out there right now. And, and, and there's a lot of talk in the healthcare world where we begin this discussion about social determinants of health. Yeah. And, and some of you may know what that is. I've been slow to be educated on this, but they're, they're sort of indicia that drive bad health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the talk has been around things like, for concepts like food deserts, right? Where there are neighborhoods where there isn't a grocery store that has fresh food, um, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables. And, and so the people that live in that neighborhood have a poor diet, right? And, and we know that's important, but at least from, the, from NAMI's perspective, the population I represent, no social determinant of health drives more bad health outcomes than than unstable housing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's simply no way that you can manage a disorder like schizophrenia, or much less, which is much more common, is someone who has schizophrenia also has diabetes, heart disease, uh, uh, other medical comorbid medical conditions, all of which are poorly managed when they don't have stable housing. Yeah. 
You're articulating housing first principles. Yeah, essentially, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. It, it, this lack of access to stable housing is a major, major driver of bad health outcomes and expensive health outcomes. Emergency utilization, you know, skyrockets when, when, when someone experiences chronic homelessness. Yeah, yeah. And just for the listeners, when I say housing first principles, essentially what we're talking about is there was, there's been a school of thought that has, I think, since been debunked that, that basically you need to get treatment first and then you can yeah. get eligible for housing. The housing first principle is the reverse of that. That uh, first, as a prerequisite, you need stable housing, and then you can work on some of the other issues you might have. Um, and that housing should be kind of a simple application process. You don't have to complete treatment first, but that housing, as Andrew said, is, is a prerequisite for um, taking care of some other issues. Um, and it's amazing how much the research, I, I think, parallels in housing and health and yeah. education. That, and we all use different terms for it, right? In health, yeah. you talk about the social determinants of health, yeah. right? And it talks about the things that are happening outside of clinical care, outside of the yeah. doctor's office. And then in education, folks talk about out-of-school factors, right? The things that the teacher cannot directly influence. Yes. And yet the research is very, it, there's a lot of parallels that these things that are happening outside the classroom or outside the doctor's office are shaping outcomes perhaps even more so than what's actually happening in the classroom or in the yeah. doctor's setting. So yeah. that's, yeah, I think that's that's the thrust of the, the campaign. Um, so, so let's dive a little bit more into the, to the issue of, of housing uh, and mental health. Um, first, I, I think it would help the listeners to kind of go through a history lesson of, of how this all kind yeah. of kind of played out. Long so, history. Yeah, yeah, long history. And so let me, uh, my basic understanding, and you tell me how right yeah. or wrong or somewhere in the middle I got it, but for, for hundreds of years, uh, people with serious mental illness basically institutionalized, right, placed in asylums. Um, and that was pretty much the norm in the U.S. until the 60s or, or 70s. And it, and it, be quick, it was a benevolent thing. There's a yeah. woman named Dorothea Dix who's sort of an icon in the mental health world. Uh-huh. And she started doing this in the 1800s, you know, 1870s, 1880s. Uh, and, and the idea was a, a quote, asylum, mm-hmm. where people who were, back then they termed mentally disturbed or mentally defective, yeah. where, where they could be, it would, it would be an asylum, a safe place safe for them place. to be. Right, right. These were good intentions. Yes. People. Yeah. 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 And so then we start having a deinstitutionalization movement. Um, we start to have better drugs that can manage illnesses better. We, there's, there's lawsuits that start to come out saying this, this isn't right. Um, there's more stories of abuse that are sort of coming to public yep. light. And so we start to see deinstitutionalization and, and people with serious mental health conditions are moving into communities. But the problem is that when they left these institutions, not enough attention was paid to housing. Yeah. What could they actually yeah. afford? Um, and so there was a, a, a noble deinstitutionalization push, but without a, an eye toward housing at all. Yeah. Um, and so then... Without affordable housing, people end up in sort of this vicious spiral of in and out of homeless yeah. shelters and and and, 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 and the affordable housing system. Was, this was not their fault, but they were right. poorly prepared to manage that transition. Sure. And, sure. And, and why is that? Well, they so particularly for public housing, but also for what we might refer to as assisted housing, mm-hmm. like various mm-hmm. forms of private rental housing that got some type of federal subsidy, whether it was mortgage insurance or mm-hmm. some, with an obligation. And there were a whole bunch of these programs, 221D3, 236, sure. covered Section 8. Um, you know, with, with the, 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 there was maybe a, a mortgage insurance and the landlord then agreed to keep the units affordable for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the multi-unit uh, public housing was largely for families with children. 
right? So if you're a single individual with schizophrenia, you don't need a three-bedroom apartment that a family with children might live. So in many communities, the only inventory of what we of zero and one bedroom units mm-hmm. were, were, in, were, were in housing that was built for quote the elderly. So this started bubbling up. I mean, people with mental illness would, were leaving the psychiatric hospital, and they would get put in, in these buildings that were sometimes large buildings, seventy to eighty unit building that was deemed quote elderly housing, yeah. right? Because yeah. it was built with the two hundred two program, was built with whatever program built it. So now you have a very volatile situation where you have a thirty five year old young man, mm-hmm. a thirty year old man with schizophrenia, and who's also got an alcohol problem, mm-hmm. living next door to an 85-year-old widow with early-onset Alzheimer's. Yep. We were getting very, very bad outcomes. Yeah. And, and Congress, re- and, and the uproar was fairly, you know, started coming in the 80s. And then finally, in 1992, Congress passed something called um, Title Six. Uh, what was it? Title 6D, and it was in a housing bill in 1992. Yeah. And what that law said was dictated was that private owners of assisted housing and public housing authorities could take large chunks of their zero and one be- buildings that were zero and one bedroom and designate them prospectively as elderly only. Hmm. The, dis- dis- the disability community fought that policy and we lost badly. Yeah. Uh, now part of it is because lots of members of Congress, when they would go home to campaign, they would go to their, that, where, where do you go during the middle of the day, right? right? Yeah. You, you go to the elderly house and, and there were, yeah. People would have their canes and their walkers, and they would shake them in the air and, you know, get these people with, you know, mental illness. So probably didn't use those terms, pejorative terms. I, sure. I, I won't on, on, on a G-rated podcast yeah, right, here. Right, right. But, but it, so members of Congress were hearing about this, yeah. Democrats and Republicans, and, and they wanted to do something about it. Um, and so we lost that battle. We lost it badly. And a few years later, we actually got HUD to try and research this. They estimated we lost as much as, as many as 600,000 units. Wow. Uh, of, of affordable zero-in-one bedroom units that prospectively became off-limits to people with disabilities. And that's when Congressman Friedlinheisen first jumped in in the mid to late 90s, actually was getting us allocations of Section 8 vouchers. So when a housing authority came to HUD to say, we want to designate those four buildings mm-hmm. as elderly only, HUD would approve it, but only on the condition that they take vouchers so that the people who might have been on the waiting list for that property could have other okay. housing. Interesting. So, so there's a lot of things we've done bad over the years. That was one of them. And I, I'm not defending, I'm not going to sit here and defend that it was a good idea to have that 30-year-old male with schizophrenia who has no history of complying with the lease because he lived in a psychiatric hospital suddenly living next door right. to, you know, to, to frail elders. Um, yeah. That's not a good idea. It's just that there, was, there were no other affordable units in the community. That was it, yeah. yeah. Um, and so where so there's a there's a criminal justice aspect to this as well, right? Is that Enormous, yeah. it, in addition to the the spiral of the the deinstitutionalization movement, and then you have folks in and out of homeless shelters. There's also a lot of folks with serious yeah. mental uh, health conditions ending up in prison. That yeah. prison essentially becomes well. I, 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 can I just, for, not a correction, but a clarification. Yeah. We need when we're talking about this, we need to draw the distinction between a prison. That's run. Yeah. That's run by the state. That's for people who've been convicted of a serious felony. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then they in the local court and they go to the state penitentiary. Yeah. There are people who've been alone sure, there. Yeah, sure. Sure. But this is largely a problem with the local jail. Yeah. Because these people are not committing yeah. serious violent felonies. Yeah. They're by and large it's, it's urinating in public. Vague, exactly. Disturbance of the peace. Shoplifting. Yeah. 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 And uh, 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 and so yes, there's an yeah. enormous burden on local law enforcement. Yeah. We have office. We have. You know, we talk to local sheriffs all over the country mm-hmm. about the amount of time their officers are spending picking up the same people over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 
most of people, these sheriffs will tell you, I know how to enforce the law. I know how to run my local jail. Right. I don't know how to run a psychiatric hospital. And I'm running a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they don't like, and we've done a lot of work with NAMI has with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a program called crisis intervention training, okay. uh, where uh, it's essentially a training program for police and how to interact with someone who's acutely psychotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, bad things can happen very, very quickly, right? Because sure. if you're acutely psychotic and you believe that the CIA is following around. You're having paranoid delusions, mm-hmm. and a, poli- a policeman lays his hand on you. Yeah. You know, to, and, not, and not in a malicious way. Right, right. You know, you might throw an elbow. Now you got a real problem, things right? Yeah, yeah, things will escalate very. So it's yeah. training officers and how to recognize psychosis and how to deal with it. Okay. How to de-escalate a situation so you don't get a situation where you know he slugs the cop and now now you got now you got a real problem. Yeah, right. Sure. Um, so the the lesson is is that. Integrating people with mental illness into society can work. It's been proven, but you need an adequate supply yeah. of affordable housing. It's or as not going to work it all falls without apart. a decent, yeah. safe place to live. Yeah, period. It all falls apart. So today, uh, what are the major challenges that, that people are facing? Uh, people with serious mental illness, the challenges that they're facing in the housing arena, particularly around affordability. What are kind of the main challenges that they're facing in terms of, you know, SSI doesn't cover rent. I mean, they yeah. kind of lay out yeah. what are those challenges? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the biggest is poverty by far, right? Yeah. So, and so we use a, as a proxy for that. And the yeah. terrific out-of-reach uh, reports that the Low Income Housing Coalition mm-hmm. does, we have a cousin of that yeah. uh, called Priced Out. Um, it's we, Every two years, uh, we go to HUD and we get the data for the fair market rents for every rental housing market. And we compare it side by side with uh, SSI income levels uh, to make a fairly obvious point, and that is if you rely on supplemental security income as your sole source of income, there's no ha- no community in America where you can rent an apartment uh, at the fair market rent uh, and only pay a third of your month, uh, your monthly yeah, income for rent. Not even close, yeah. Not even close. Some places yeah. as much as 200%, more than 200% of your yeah. SSI check, your monthly SSI check. So poverty is by far the biggest barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are others as well. Uh, uh, it, it's... So people, because of their very behavior, uh, when they're not adhering to treatment, will engage in behaviors that will result in you being evicted, mm-hmm. right? If you are experiencing acute psychosis uh, and you're blaring your stereo at three o'clock in the morning, that's a violation of your lease. Sure. Uh, or you kick in the drywall or whatever. And, but, but those behaviors can be related to the very fact that you're, you're, you're experiencing an acute episode. Uh, and so it takes intensive, sometimes often intensive support services to help that individual comply with a lease. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all part of the model that we know of as permanent supportive housing. Yeah, right. Flexible supports and services to help that individual meet their obligations of tenancy. Yeah, I want to get to the various types of, yeah, of yeah. housing in a minute. Uh, but I want to hit on, I, I want to ask another question too, where um, another potential challenge is, you know, if you're ever hospitalized or you're in an inpatient yeah. care unit, what happens to the unit that you are currently yeah. in? Right. I mean, do they move your stuff out? I mean, how does that all play out for a lot of these folks? Yeah. And again, so so in in the model of permanent supportive housing, uh, we want people to have the rights of tenancy. Mm -hmm. So it would be the same as if you've got a serious heart condition and you had to have open heart surgery and then you went into rehab. Mm -hmm. So we we want it covered, you know, the the same accommodation made for any other illness. Right. but we recognize that sometimes we have to ask for a reasonable accommodation related to, to when you get out. Now, if you have a Section 8 voucher, that can continue to be paid. Mm-hmm. But in many cases, uh, some of the other supportive housing we have, um, it, 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 the individual doesn't have a lease but has something called an occupancy agreement, okay. which sounds like it's a lease, but it really isn't. Yeah, yeah. Right. So those are house rules that you have to live by. And they're not that different than what you have to live by when you're a tenant in a rental property. Mm-hmm. 
but you don't actually have the rights of tenancy. Okay. Right. So you, you're the person. You can't take the owner of the building to court under landlord-tenant law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times people have an and that occupancy agreement will actually spell out what can be done to ensure that the unit can be held. Uh, no one can be held for. 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and that's oftentimes an occupancy agreement. Okay, got it. But the person under lease, you need to ask for reasonable, it's reasonable sure. accommodation to my disability right. that I'm gonna have to, I had to go into the psych hospital. Now, one of the interesting things yeah. is, uh, increasingly, as managed care takes over many state Medicaid programs, the length of stay, and you know, when you have an episode mm-hmm. of acute symptoms, and you go into the psych hospital, you're not going to get 30 or 60 days. You're going to get four or five days. Oh, really? And so the, the, the length of stay in hospitals, even for something as serious as a suicide attempt or psychosis, is actually mm. shorter and shorter. So mm. we usually don't run into these problems of people going to the hospital for 45 or 50 days right. and having you know the, the risk of losing the apartment. Yeah, okay. And then the, the SSI, I want to handle, uh, hammer on that a little bit more. So I, I looked at some numbers. So in, in 2016, the average monthly SSI payment was $744.00. And the national average rent for a studio apartment was $752. Yep. So there's 100% yep. of your income yep. uh, just on rent. And that's an average. That's an average, right? Yeah. I mean, forget yeah. about the 30%, yeah. you know, affordability number. Yeah, I try mean, Honolulu where it's, you know, 200. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's crazy. Um, I mean, and then for a modest one-bedroom apartment, rent was on average 861 per month, which is 113 yep. Uh, percent of the average monthly SSI payment. So, I mean, just not even close, not even in the ballpark, really, yeah. for a lot of folks. Um, so let's talk about um, when NAMI says a good housing match, uh, there's really four elements of that. There's four key needs, I yeah. think, that, that you all talk about. One is housing should be affordable. Uh, it should offer the right amount of independence. It should meet physical needs, and it should be discrimination-free. Uh, talk to us about each one of those four and why you feel like those, those four are the four key needs and yeah. how they all kind of play well, together. The affordable is fairly obvious, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, particularly for someone living on SSI. Yeah. Um, it, it, meeting their needs. What do, we, what, what do we mean by that? Well, oftentimes uh, it, 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 it's um, proximity to, uh, to opportunities in education and employment. It's very, very important. Oftentimes proximity to family members. Mm. They may not be the primary caregiver, Right, but 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 that you know, so they aren't having, uh, oftentimes need to be near public transportation, which means you know it, it might be a little bit more expensive than it were, you know, sure. say in, in, a, in a remote part of the community. Yeah. Uh, but that ability, because oftentimes it's some you know may have their own automobile, but many don't, mm-hmm. uh, and they need to be able to to, to access uh, uh, transportation for for other things that are important in their life, like sure. you know, education opportunities and employment opportunities, yeah. Yeah. Would, would would be another really important. Yeah. Do you all use the term neighborhoods of opportunity? That's something we use we a lot probably in should. Space. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's that same concept, yeah. though, yeah. right? That location matters, right? Yeah. It's access to yeah. pharmacies and grocery stores and yeah. employment and, and education. Um, okay, yeah. And, and, yeah, and the social isolation that comes with living and the sure. social social isolation is a it can be a very very big issue for, for our people. Yeah, sure. Uh, to the, to the extent that they're isolated, it actually can exacerbate their symptoms mm-hmm. of anxiety or depression or or, or uh, mania, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then the um, the right amount or the discrimination free yeah. aspect of yeah. it. I mean, obviously, uh, there's discrimination that plays out in a lot of forms. Uh, you all deal with it, I'm sure, on yeah. a daily we basis. All do. Talk yeah. to us about what yeah. how that plays out uh, in terms of people with with mental health conditions. So, uh, in 1988, we passed the Fair Housing Act amendments that added disability as a protected class under the Fair Housing Act. Yeah. 
And one of the and that was in, sorry, 80, 1988, 88. Uh, uh, with the, the amendments to the Fair Housing mm -hmm. Act, and uh, that is very, very important yeah. um, because many people with mental, and, and that also creates the concept of reasonable accommodation. Yeah. So we're going to have lots of people with serious mental illness that have troubled tenant histories. They have a couple of evictions on their record. Mm -hmm. Now, a landlord is able to say, you know, I don't. This is a little sketchy here. He had, yeah. he's had two evictions in the last eighteen months. I'm a little, un, you know, uneasy about letting this young man move into to my apartment, uh, into my building. Uh, but it, you can't ask for a reasonable accommodation in that those evictions were related to the fact that he mm -hmm. had an episode of his symptoms and left and hitchhiked across the country or whatever it is that person did that resulted. And and but the reasonable accommodation has to be related to the disability. So you have to make the case that it was the disability mm -hmm. that it was at the root of this, yeah. and it has to be a reasonable accommodation, right? right? And, and so that's a, really the important part on, 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 on discrimination is, is is meeting that standard of reasonable accommodation to deal with an issue. And so today, when we talk about discrimination that happens on a day-to-day -day basis, what does it actually look like? Um, how does it play out on yeah. a day? How, yeah. how are people getting around the, yeah. the, yeah. the 1980s? Well, we do know we meet yeah. regularly with the people in the, in the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, FHEO at HUD, mm -hmm. and they will talk about the high volume of their complaints that are disability-related. Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes, it's tough to meet that standard of reasonable accommodation. So you might have someone who's a hoarder, mm -hmm. right, who hoards things. You know, they have obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever that, caught, that, that results from one of their symptoms being hoarding. Well, it, it's getting that person the support they need to deal with the issues about how that might violate the lease. Right. right? I mean, hoarding is one thing. It's another thing to actually disturb the quiet use and enjoyment of others when you're, you've got food, you're hoarding food, and all of a sudden there are mice and roaches in the building. Yeah. You don't have the right to do that under your lease. Right? So it's actually getting that person and engaging with them to make them understand, okay, we're going to deal with your symptom of hoarding, but here's what you got to do to make sure you comply with your lease. And so it's, it, and it takes, oftentimes takes uh, a case manager to engage that person mm -hmm. to help them understand. And, and, and it, it's not easy, but uh, again, we don't want to see people discriminated against, but at the same time, you have to, we want to, people with mental illness, other disabilities need to be tenants and meet their obligations of tenancy just like everyone else does. Sure. And so let's talk about those the different types of housing options, right? Because yeah. there's a whole there's a whole it, spectrum here. Yeah. Some offer kind of twenty four seven type supports. Uh, others are completely independent living, and then there's 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 stuff everything in, the in between. Yeah. yeah, everything in between. Um, so I, these these terms I think are, are thrown a lot around, but I want to make sure that our listeners kind of understand exactly what they mean. And you all talk about it in terms of there's supervised group housing. There's partially supervised group housing, there's supportive housing, and then there's rental housing and, and homeownership. Yeah. And so let's kind of go just, just one by one and kind of, you know, explain to the listeners wh what we mean by these terms. So first is the supportive group housing. Um, and this is, I would say, the most intensive uh, type of support. So talk to us, what does that mean when we say supervised group yeah, housing? It's, it's going to be congregate. Um, and under the Supreme Court's own decision, it really shouldn't be really, really large. Right. We, we don't. And, and there's something in Medicaid law called the Institution for Mental Disease Exclusion that actually yeah. caps it at 16 beds. 16. OK. OK. Yeah, I was going to ask um, you what the number was. Uh, okay. and, and this is beyond the definition of the standard of permanent supportive housing that we're going to talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it, 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 it's going to be congregate. It could be, you know, and usually it's single sex. Yeah. There's, there's some where there are women that live there, too, but probably in a separate part of the building. Okay. Um, 
And they don't have the rights of tenancy, so they don't necessarily pick who their roommate is. Uh, and meals might be served on site, but if they're only served breakfast from eight to nine and lunch, you know, and and it, and it can be you know somewhat regimental, mm-hmm. um, uh, and this can work for some people. But there are other advocates that feel strongly that this is not housing. This this is actually residential care, which they view different from housing. Okay. Uh, and every state does it a little bit different. Uh, in, many, in some cases, it's going to be high-quality housing where it's, it's, the facility's licensed and they're meeting durable standards in terms of cleanliness and 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 uh, staffing ratios and and all, all and things like that. Um, in many states, it's not, and that's where we see bad things happen in bad conditions, uh, where private owners own these and there's there's no licensure by licensing by the state. There are no quality standards enforced. Uh, and they're just taking a per diem from the county mental health department, and you'll see deplorable conditions. Yeah, yeah. And this this category would be designed for folks with the most severe um, conditions, yes. right? And, yeah. and we're talking, what size of the, the population are we talking about? It's a pretty small percentage. Oh, it's actually bigger than you think. And okay. It, it, yeah, it, it's, for, for people, and again, it varies by disorder, but for schizophrenia, right. a large chunk of the two, two and a half million Americans with schizophrenia are, are gonna, you know, have fall in this sort of support. yeah, okay. yeah, and well, and not necessarily need housing of, of, of that intense a level, right? But but I also want to dispel a myth here, and that is that permanent integrated permanent supportive housing can't work for this population. It can. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, this is not an issue of that, we, that we've built the system and we built housing to meet these very. We actually really haven't. Right. And you see states that still rely on group homes and board and care homes, residential care facilities, simply because they haven't bothered to invest in integrated permanent supportive housing. Right. There are a lot of people out there, uh, in Florida they call them ALPS, assisted living facilities, mm-hmm. that could actually live in more integrated settings. It's just that they don't exist. They don't. It, it, so what's, what's the argument for not doing it? Is it just not paying attention to it? Is there an argument that it's cheaper to uh, have more congregate settings? Well, I mean, look, what's a, the... a, a couple of things. Number yeah. one, in some states, uh, this industry, if you will, has mm. been around for a while, and they are getting resources from state government. Yeah. through various programs, and when a well-funded interest is getting yeah. resources from state government, it's very hard to take it yeah. away. Once you have a constituency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah, so this yeah. is an industry that, you know, that has a lobbyist at the state capitol, and when anyone talks about, well, let's move the money from the, you know, from, from the board and care homes and, the, and, and, and to more integrated permanent supportive housing, there's a constituency out there that's going to fight that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big challenge uh, when, when we, you know, when we talk about integrated permanent supportive housing, the most difficult part of that puzzle is the ongoing rent subsidy. Yeah. Right. There's money for capital because that's a one-time expenditure to build the building. Yep. And the tax credit program is out there. The low-income housing tax credit program is out there to do that. The challenge is providing that ongoing subsidy that we talked about. The difference between the third of the, the SSI mm-hmm. uh, income and the uh, actually operating cost of the unit. That's the most difficult piece in this. Mm-hmm. And so it's getting the commitment. For that subsidy from somewhere, and by and large, it's going to be from the housing authority. Right. And the local housing authority is saying, I would love to help you by giving you 10 subsidies to project based in that building where it's going to be integrated with other people that don't have disabilities, but i got a five-year waiting list. Right. right. And I'm not telling people that have been on my way, my Section 8 waiting list for four years waiting to get to the top. you got to wait another year because we're... Another, yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Um, okay, so we have... So, so that's 
the concept of supervised group housing, and then we have partially supervised group housing, where you know support isn't there 24 hours a day. Residents can be left alone for several uh, several hours. They're able to essentially call for help if if yeah. needed, um, and and then you have uh, su- uh, supportive housing itself, which is sort of very limited assistance altogether. Uh, residents live almost independently. They're visited by staff pretty infrequently. So that's kind of the, the spectrum after yeah. supervised group housing. As you know, and we don't have nearly of enough of, of the permanent group have, house. Yeah, we yeah. don't have enough of that. Yeah, no doubt. And then, and then of course, there's rental, just traditional rental housing and home ownership for people yeah. that are, you know, completely independent altogether. And so the real gap is in that the permanent supportive um, yep. housing piece. Sure. Um, so, so let's talk about how federal policy is is currently structured to, to help uh, lack those, thereof. Yeah, or lack thereof. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was going to be my follow up question. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean, what what's federal policy currently doing to help those with serious mental illness find housing? What what what's currently in existence? Well, we again we we got the new resource. So we have several. We have the HUD eight eleven program, which has mm-hmm. two parts to it. There's the project-based rental assistance program that 34 states are implementing, and that's been slow in being implemented, but, 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 but that's integrated permanent supportive housing. Mm-hmm. The money goes to project-based rental assistance, uh, and, 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 and when a project-based rental assistance subsidy goes into a building, no more than 25% of the units in that building can be permanent supportive housing for people with disabilities. With the idea being we want people with disabilities living next door to people that don't have disabilities, families with children integrated in the community. Um, That's the project-based part of of the Section 811 program. We have a tenant-based part known as the mainstream uh, program, and we actually have money in FY18 that still hasn't been expended. Uh, The the 250 housing authorities around the country were awarded uh, these vouchers about a month ago. But we have another. We have another upwards of maybe 180 million coming, and another notice of funding availability coming, hopefully in the next few weeks. Okay. Um, uh, and that is, those are Section 8 portable tenant-based yeah. vouchers uh, that can only go to non-elderly people with disabilities. So we have this infusion of resources in 2018 and 2019 that's going to be really go a long way uh, toward making this work. But that's not the only program that people with mental illness and other disabilities access. Uh, we are the principal target, if you will, I mean, individuals that experience chronic homelessness of the McKinney-Vento program. Right. And the McKinney-Vento program has built quite a bit of permanent supportive housing uh, over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, in fact, has done more of it because we actually implemented a policy going back to the late 90s uh, requiring a set-aside for permanent housing in the McKinney program. And NAMI supported that. And people were asked, well, why would NAMI support that? Because up until then, the McKinney program had been funding a lot of services. Right. Uh, job training, you know, education, nutrition, all you know, emergency shelter type services, and and, and that's needed. Sure. Uh, but the concern was that we were building a really sophisticated, well-functioning service system that depended on people staying homeless to be eligible for the services. And that made no sense. So the permanent supportive housing program in McKinney was a huge step forward that we made in the late '90s to get the McKinney program to invest in permanent supportive housing, essentially to end the cycle of chronic homelessness. Yeah, it's filling in the missing link, which yeah, is, yeah, yeah housing. Um, so where is federal policy currently falling short? Obviously, just the, the resource issue itself. The resources, yeah, uh, is by far the, yeah, that's the, the, big the, the biggest issue. But, yeah. but also, I, I think one of the really good things we did with the trust fund was really the first time we really were able to target a, a 
a HUD resource, a housing resource toward not just rental housing, but rental housing for what we refer to as ELI or extremely low income households below 30% of area median income. We always have these challenges in housing policy and debates in Congress um, when groups like NAMI and and others Mm -hmm. really wanted to insist on deep, deep targeting to the the, the most low income. And there was resistance to that. And the resistance to that was, you know, we we don't want HUD programs to only be about the poorest of the poor because then we don't have a political constituency to support support funding and support policy going forward. There's the issue of, you know, the value of a voucher to serve someone on SSI who's at 18% of area median income is dramatically higher yep. than it is for someone at 80% of area median okay. income. Yep. So one of the excuses, not excuses, that was probably pejorative, but one of one of the fights we would get into you know, over policy was, but hold on a minute, if you if you allow us to target up to 80% of AMI, we can serve double the number of households. Right. Yep. Look at all the people that we'll be able to serve. Well, and again, yeah. that... Yeah. That, that's a struggle because it's not an easy argument to make. But our argument was, no, 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 no. These people need to help the most. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is what the campaign talks about, too, is yeah. that if you're talking about equitable federal housing policy, you have to target those who are in most in need. And when you look at uh, folks who are severely cost burdened, there's just no comparison, right? It's most deeply impacting those yeah. at 30% AMI. And, and I was there throughout the debate on the yeah. trust fund. And that was one of the real victories. Sheila Crowley, the longtime executive director of the Low Income Housing Coalition, she kept being told by Democrats and Republicans, "You're going to have to compromise on this. You're going to have to let us, you know, do you know more home ownership and go go much higher on the income scale." And she resisted at every turn, and she won. Yeah, yeah. and now seventy-five percent of the housing trust fund is yeah. focused on thirty yeah. percent AMI and below. Um, so. I want to talk a little bit more about the the recovery piece, right? I mean, we often talk about how yeah. housing is essential for recovery and that people with mental illness um, can't reach their goals if you don't have stable housing. Um, but more than that, when there's a lack of housing, it can exacerbate the conditions yeah. that are already there. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just kind of give us a few uh, maybe examples that, that kind of illustrate this in terms yeah. of wh- housing is a, is a critical piece in terms of recovery. Absolutely. I think we, we, we miss that sometimes. Well, it, it, yeah. it, it, not just, you know, but any serious chronic condition. If, yeah, right. Yeah. If you don't have a state, your ability to adhere to treatment, to take your medication, yeah. to engage in other behaviors, yeah. you know, in terms of tobacco cessation and, yeah. and exercise. And yeah. it, it, without a, you don't have an apartment, that's really, really hard to do. Right. It's even, I mean... Um, refrigerating your medicine, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's simple stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Without stable housing, yeah. it, it falls apart. Um, I want to talk about the, the cost piece here, um, that supportive housing is cheaper than institutionalization, is cheaper than jails. Um, and so what, what do we know about the cost savings of supportive housing? That when, you know, when you have good housing solutions, people are not taking up expensive hospital beds, they're not going to the ER as much. How do you all think about this kind of cost savings, that economically it makes sense yeah. to do all this, and, right? And, and it and does. it's actually foolish not to do this. And, and it does. So, so, so this yeah. is actually the most graphic way to describe this is, is some of the issues we have around nursing homes. There are a lot of people with mental illness, mm-hmm. non-elderly people with mental illness that are in nursing homes. There are also people with other significant disabilities that are in nursing homes. And, and we know that a nursing home bed in most states can be as high as seventy or eighty or $90,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And we know that permanent supportive housing is dramatically less expensive. Right. Why is why the struggle there? Why not just take all those Medicaid dollars and transfer them in, you know, to, to rent subsidies and allow do it a lot cheaper and allow people to live in more integrated settings? Yeah. 
Well, we have this agency inside the government called the Congressional Budget Office. And when we talk about enacting these changes to Medicaid, you know, first of all, it's hard to, you just can't take dollars from the Medicaid budget and give it to HUD. Right, not that easy. Yeah. It's, not, it's not that easy to do. Yeah. But even then, the Congressional Budget Office says they're skeptical that, that you can immediately, that, that you will immediately shut down that nursing home bed and, and, and won't be spending that money, continue to spend that money on the Medicaid side. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, we, we know we spend dramatically more money to, pe- to keep people in, in more restrictive settings. But flipping that switch and moving those dollars is just not nearly as easy as one would think. Yeah. The, um, I want to ask, too, about the, the, how NIMBY comes into this whole equation. Yeah. Um, you know, when there's a, any sort of proposal... Uh, for people with, uh, mm-hmm. with serious mental uh, can, uh, health conditions, there's often people saying, you know, not in my backyard, even if it's for a few people, right? Not a not a big facility, even yeah. just a, a few a few folks. Um, there's still pushback. How do we go about addressing this NIMBY issue, vis-a-vis uh, people living with mental illness? So we actually this was in the Fair Housing Act amendments of 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Congress explicitly said that, that local communities cannot use zoning and land, land use restrictions uh, to, 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 to fight placement of housing for people with disabilities in local communities. Mm-hmm. We actually had a Supreme Court case in 1996, went all the way up um, yeah. to the Supreme Court. And they, again, another 63 decision where they uh, said, yes, indeed, the Fair Housing Act does bar, bar discriminatory zoning and land use policies against congregate housing for people with disabilities. Um, but we know the stigma still exists. Yeah. And we know that there are people that make these specious arguments about it's going to result in you know, the, the, the property values on, on the block and in the immediate neighborhood. Property values, crime. Yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, we know that's not true. Yeah. But we've also seen a sea change uh, over time. And with the, uh, the Olmstead decision by the Supreme Court that came a few years after that Oxford House case on the Fair Housing Act, is that more and more, not only do people with disabilities want to live in the most integrated setting, but states are mandated to, to, to move toward that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as a result, um, we're building fewer and fewer con- large congregate housing for people with disabilities, and we're doing integrated permanent supportive housing where this NIMBY isn't really an issue because yeah. yeah. you're just moving four people into a 25-unit building. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we actually had some experience on, with this in Louisiana after Katrina and Rita uh, over a decade ago. Uh, when Louisiana made a major investment of the, the they got community development block grant dollars uh, uh, in the few years after after the hurricanes, uh, and they took a chunk of that money and did integrated permanent supportive housing for formerly homeless individuals and people with all, all types of disabilities. And I actually went to a meeting in Baton Rouge, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe two or three years after the program had launched, and there was a forum, um, a, you know, a panel with some of the landlords. And they love these tenants. Mm-hmm. And I was like, kind of baffled, you know, why, yeah. the reason they love them is because they came with services. They came with a case manager. So for their market rate tenants, when they're, they've kicked in the drywall, they've blaring the stereo at three in the morning, you know, disturbing the, the quiet and use enjoyment of others, they have to go deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. By contrast, when it was one of the, the tenants that came in the, in the permanent supportive housing, all they have to they the, the the case managers have had beepers and cell phones. Yeah, immediately. And they just get the call. Yeah, they get a text message. Yeah. Come over. Yeah. You know, this this is happening. The case manager comes over and solves the problem. Yeah, yeah. And so the the um, 
the integration aspect of this, right? That you're talking about, you know, four or five people. It undercuts the NIMBY argument, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a silly argument to yeah. make the case that, yeah. oh, you know, the presence of four people with the appropriate supports is going to tank property values, it's going to yeah. increase crime. It's just a silly argument. Yeah. Whereas if it were uh, in a large congregate setting, right, it, the, the arguments might seem a little bit more plausible. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's it in terms of questions. This was this was really really useful. Thank you for doing this podcast. Um, I think you know success in the mental health community demands success in the housing community, and that's why, you know, we're part of this this campaign together, and that's why we're advocating um, for more robust and, and equitable federal housing policy. So thanks for everything you do, and and for the for the listeners, I'd really urge you to to learn more about. Uh, the work at NAMI and Andrew's work at NAMI, you can visit their website at nami.org. Uh, and again, really urge you to, to check that out. So, Andrew, thanks again. Really Thank you, Mike. Appreciate your time.